We'll be in Titus 1, verses 6 through 16. Titus 1, verses 6 through 16. Before we uh, read our passage, I want to tell you about a recent survey of medical school admissions officers that revealed the shocking truth about what they look for in the ideal candidate. Some of you guys already know this world and have been applying these past few months. This is the shocking truth of this survey. They said that what they looked for were five things. One, a middle-of-the-road GPA because it shows life balance. Number two, motivation by personal experience or lofty ambition in the medical field. Number three, experience in other professional environments, perhaps dental, law, financial. Number four, an ability to follow someone else's lead. Number five, people who are honest that they want to make the kind of money that doctors make. While a few of you sophomores furiously scribble down these things or Google for the survey I'm talking about, I want to be really clear, no such survey exists. Probably simplifying it, but it doesn't take a survey of medical school admissions officers to know what medical schools look for. They look for a high GPA, not a middle-of-the-road one. They look for people motivated by the right reasons, selflessness and compassion for people. They look for experience in lab, clinic, and hospital environments, not dental, law, and financial institutions. They look for good judgment and leadership. They look for people who are not in it for the money, but are realistic about the whole experience that they're getting into. Medical schools look for qualified candidates. They look for qualified candidates who have good character, experience, and the right commitment, and the right motives, people who will contribute to the endeavors of the medical community. They will contribute to human wellness. So while the picture of these medical school missions officers who are misguided in what they're looking for in an applicant may seem laughable, especially to those of you who are going through this process, this is exactly what happens in God's church. We are so often misguided and we are looking for in spiritual leaders. You see, we often look for the chill spiritual leader or the cool one or the one who can keep up with you on the basketball court or the one with the cool shoes or the funny one or the one that doesn't make you fall asleep. But then, of course, if we're honest, those are the ones that we don't agree with, that we don't like. We think they're too uptight or We think they're kind of fundamentalist or the legalistic, or we assume they're too busy to care about you, or we think they're not as loving as they should be. At the heart of our relationship with spiritual leaders, or the lack of relationship with spiritual leaders, is our expectations of them, and therefore our response to spiritual leaders. We don't understand them, so we don't respect them like we should. They seem like they're from another planet sometimes. They're too serious. They're not relevant. Or all they do is preach and go home. 
Now, Grace on Campus, my concern is that you may be in a place tonight where you are not connected in a meaningful way to the leaders in your life. Or that you may be in a place where you think they are unapproachable or not as helpful as they should be. Or maybe you're in a place where you are purposefully keeping them at an arm's length. Now, I believe this passage tonight will help you understand why God has called men to be spiritual leaders, why God has called these men to be who they are, to do what they do, and how he has wired these men to shepherd his church. Understanding just a little bit of the other side of the relationship will help you to understand and appreciate and love and extend grace to, and even want to reach out to the spiritual leaders in your life. So let's read our passage, Titus 1. Let's start in verse 5 for a little bit of context, all the way through verse 16. Paul writes, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town, as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. This passage is God's instruction in Titus for us, really a pamphlet-length passage for us to familiarize ourselves with God's design for leadership in the church, God's design for leadership in the church, so that we can respond to the leaders in our lives in the way that we should, to cultivate relationships with them, to honor and respect them, and to let them rule over us. Flip over really quick to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 13. Look at Hebrews 13, verse 7. 
Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. It says, consider the outcome of their way of life and what? Imitate their faith. Drop down to verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning for that would be of no advantage to you. Some of you want to be leaders in the church as well. You're figuring things out. You're angling to go to seminary or to be an elder someday. And you just want to know the things to do to get to the next step to eventually be a leader in the church. Well, this passage tonight shows you not what to do, but who to be. Our passage tonight in Titus is full of thought-provoking and self-examination-inducing principles for all of us, for us to see what God expects of spiritual leaders so that we can line up our expectations to God's expectations and respond rightly in imitation, in obedience, and in humility to those who lead us in the church. So tonight, we'll see four aspects of elders to imitate. Four aspects of elders to imitate. The first is the elders care. The elders care. That is the elders care for his family. You see that in verse 6. Paul uses in this passage two words to describe these Men, presbyteros in the Greek and episkopos. Presbyteros in verse 5 and appoint what? Elders, presbyteros in every town. And then in verse 7, the word episkopos for an overseer. Both of these words are used interchangeably for the word elder or overseer or pastor. We understand these people to be the same person. Presbyteros in verse 5 literally means an older person, relatively advanced in age. We're looking at someone with some life experience. Episcopos, overseer, means someone who oversees something. Someone whose responsibility it is to safeguard something or to make sure something is done right. In short, a, a guardian. And so before Paul gets to the elder's care, the elder's care for his family, there's an overarching principle that Paul presents. He says the elder or the overseer must be above reproach. He must be, in other words, blameless, above the fray of accusation, above any kind of shame that might come because of someone's charge against him. He cannot be discredited in any way. A charge can't be brought against him. The elder should not be open to attack or criticism in the sense of how he lives his life. This person must not objectively be chargeable with any sort of charge. And why is that? It's not because God needs perfect people to lead his church. It's because any blame, any criticism, any attack, any shame would bring reproach upon the testimony of the gospel. It would bring reproach upon the witness of the church. Last time we were in Titus, we talked about this glorious gospel that is the hope of eternal life. 
And so for the leaders of God's church to bring any sort of blame or reproach upon that glorious gospel would be a shame to God himself. And so Paul is saying here, this is a man whose life must represent God, who, who must, by who he, is, who he is at his core and how he lives, he must be above reproach. He must be blameless. So that's the overarching principle in this passage. First, we see the elder must be above reproach, must be blameless in his family life. Verse 6, if anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. First, we see he must be the husband of one wife. That sounds simple, at least in the modern context for those of you who don't watch TLC. Against the backdrop, though, of a promiscuous society, both back then and now, Paul is instructing Titus to appoint people who are a one-woman man. He must have care and respect for his wife or for the woman that will be his wife someday, even if he doesn't know who she is. He upholds her dignity by his devotion to her and only her. He must be a picture of Christ and the church, the purity of that relationship. He must give complete marital and sexual fidelity to the wife that God has given him. And as you know, the Bible sets the bar high. Matthew 5, Jesus himself says, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And so the overseer in this passage, the elder, is held to this standard of physical purity, internet purity. In his heart, he must be pure. There must not be any question or reproach as to whether he is faithful to his wife. This is total and complete alignment with God's will. Listen to 1 Thessalonians 4. For this is the will of God your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Men, this is not just for elders and overseers. This is for every one of us. Women, this is not just for elders and overseers. This is for every one of us. Here's where we can begin to see that When Hebrews 13 says, imitate their faith, we see elders and overseers as examples of the things that we all need to do as well. Total and complete alignment with God's will that we abstain from sexual immorality. The overseer must also be above reproach in regards to his care for his children. Look at verse 6 again. His children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Now, this word believers, it's the word pistos, faith. It could mean believers or simply faithful children. And there's been debates over time between commentaries and professors and scholars that this could mean either that the, faith, the, the children are faithful to obey him. They're simply faithful to obey, like a servant, a faithful servant would obey his master. 
Or this could mean that literally they must be believers in every sense of the word, that in the spirit of Titus to adorn the doctrine of God that they believe and that they also show by not being open to debauchery or insubordination. So this could mean either thing. Well, the word pistos in the New Testament unequivocally refers to someone who is a believer or when used of a servant in parables and stories talks about or refers to people who are believers. So someone who has pistos has saving faith. So I believe here, at least from the reading I've done and the study I've done, that Paul is saying that the elder literally must have children who are believers. This is over and above the principle found in the parallel passage for Timothy 3, where it says the elder must just simply manage his own household well. Titus brings that standard higher and says the elder must have believing children. These children must show in their obedience to their earthly father that they love their heavenly father. Now, this might seem to you like an extremely high standard for church leaders, and it is. It might also seem to you like an overstep of a Calvinistic view of God's sovereignty and salvation. And it's not. Because you need to realize that in everybody's salvation, yours, mine, what I pray for in my own children's salvation, there is a responsibility of someone else to preach the gospel in that person's life, whether yours, mine, my children's, or the elder's children's. There is human responsibility as well. And so in this passage, it's the elder's responsibility. So you should realize, begin to recognize, even as a college student, that there is an awesome and weighty responsibility of teaching God's truth and the glory of the gospel to your future children. In a balanced and gracious and a life-demonstrative way. You should recognize now there actually is responsibility here. It's painstakingly prayerful, but it's joy-filled, and it ultimately is your responsibility. Begin to observe the examples around you, the staffers, of the priority it must be not just in the elder's life, but in every parent's life. Both of these family life qualifications are a principle, a short description, if you, if you want to understand it that way. So it doesn't blindly disqualify single men or those without kids. Paul's simply addressing what is ordinary in the church for an elder to have a wife and kids. And so this passage still has implications for all. You see, for the single man, this would have import for how he dates or if he flirts or if his interactions are appropriate with other people. For the man who is a widower, there can be implications. For the man who doesn't have children, there are still implications. The bottom line, though, is does this man's family life or trajectory toward a family life compromise the witness of the gospel and the church in any way? The overseer must be above reproach, blameless in his care for his family. First Timothy 3, 5 says this, For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, 
how will he care for God's church? An argument of lesser to greater. The overseer must be a spiritual father to those in his own household before he is a spiritual father to those in God's household. This is the elder's care. The elder's care for his family. Secondly, we see the elder's character. The elder's character. That is his godly character. For an overseer, verse 7, for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. An overseer, Paul says here in verse 7 again, as God's steward must be above reproach. Now, this word steward here in this, in this verse is oikonomos, literally oikos, namas, law of the house, the overseer of the oikos, overseer of the house. So Paul extends his metaphor. He says the elder is the steward of his own house, verse 6, we just looked at. And now Paul says he is the oikonomos, the overseer of God's house here in verse 7. And as such, Paul reiterates, he must be above reproach. And here we see in verses 7 8, the elder must be above reproach, not only in his family life, but in his own personal character. Who he is at the very core of who he is, he must be blameless. This is here where the requirements for leaders in God's church are a glimpse into what God would have for you, for those who are under this kind of leadership. Imitate this kind of faith. You see, if these men are our examples, what are they examples of? These things. If we are to imitate them, what are we to imitate them in? These things. I think so often we think of being above reproach as something just for young men. I think as young men, me being, having been and being one of them, we think of being above reproach sometimes as this line. And I get this picture of capture the flag. There's a line where if you cross it, you're no longer above reproach. I think sometimes we get in our brains about, how close can we get to this line? And maybe, hey, if I cross it, yeah, I cross the reproach, but I'm young still and I can keep growing. But then we're kind of teasing over the line and seeing how far we can get before someone calls us out or we're rebuked, or we have conviction, or we read God's word in the specific area we're struggling in. And we kind of wait for that. The idea of being above reproach, Grace on Campus, is the exact opposite of seeing how close we can get to that line. It's being away from the line. It's being totally and completely blameless blameless as God has called us blameless in Christ. Tim Chalius says it this way, while elders are meant to exemplify these traits, all Christians are to display them. So let's look at the elder's godly character. First, we see in verse seven, five things that must not characterize him. Number one, he must not be arrogant. That is self-willed or stubborn. It's the opposite of gentle or kind or gracious. 
In the opinions the elder has, does he insist on his own way? Is he self-willed in such a way that he is not characterized by love? Number two, he must not be quick-tempered. That's inclined to anger or hot-headed, contentious, not peaceable, impulsive or divisive. There's a Greek dictionary that says that someone who is quick-tempered, I like this, says, it says, someone who is quick-tempered loses no time being angry and does so with those they ought not, over things they ought not, and far more than they ought. This is someone who is quick-tempered. When this man, he, he's opposed or under pressure, is he patient and calm in his response or quick to speak and quick to pounce on other people? The elder must not be quick-tempered. Number three, the elder must not be drunkard. He must not be a drunkard. This is given to drinking too much wine, literally, addicted. Literally, it's alongside, por oinas, alongside or being found with wine all the time, as if characteristically so. This is the question, is the elder's use of alcohol a driving force in his life? Is his partaking in alcohol controlling him such that he is forsaking the Holy Spirit's presence and control over his life? Number four, the elder must not be violent and must not be a bully or a striker. An overseer in God's church surely should not be physically violent. I think you would agree. But just as precarious is the man of God whose words are violent, who uses his mouth to tear people down. How does this person respond when wronged or upset with humility and tenderness or violence and vitriol physically or in his words? Number five, the elder must not be greedy for gain. Must not be overtaken by a desire for wealth or money or possessions whether his own finances or the church's finances. The overseer cannot be greedy. And as a citizen of heaven, he cannot be driven by a desire for this worldly pleasures and treasures. You see, he can and have and use money. He's not a monk. First Timothy 5, the elder, the elder deserves his wages, in fact. But is he materialistic or greedy or spendy to the point that he holds the things of this world as more important than the things of the world to come? Does the way that this man handles what God has given to him bring reproach in any way on God's church? And so these are five things that the elder cannot be characterized by. These are the vices the overseer must not be enslaved by. He must not be gripped by these things or held by these things. His own pride, his own anger, his desire for drink, his desire to dominate, or his desire for wealth. The big picture again here is this man must be above reproach in these areas. As a steward of God's house, the church, he must not be under the control of his own desires or emotions. This man must be an example, a good measuring stick for everyone in God's house. He must be driven by the power of the Spirit, not by the sins of self. Here, 
in verse 7. Paul goes on in verse 8 to describe six more attributes, this time positive. These are the things that the elder or the overseer should be. Number one, hospitable. This is having people over your house or your apartment, but it's more than that. It's a posture toward other people, uh, generosity, uh, charity. One commentator says, this person must be devoted to the welfare of others. The elder must be hospitable. Number two, he must be a lover of good. The overseer must love the things that God loves. I think of Philippians 4, verse 8. Finally, brother, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And for the elder... And for us who imitate the faith of the elder, love these things. Number three, the elder must be self-controlled. Self-controlled. This is prudence or thoughtfulness, a mastery of mind or emotions or words or deeds, an ability to control, but humbly and in the power of the Spirit. And this theme of self-control comes up over and over in Titus. We'll see this over the next few weeks. It is the key characteristic that sets the devoted Christian against the self and flesh gratifying influence of the world. It's the power of the spirit in the person's life, in the Christian's life. Number four, the elder must be upright. This is a sense of being just or righteous, Now, it's not being declared righteous by God, not being declared upright, but this is a characteristic where the elder is concerned as an overseer to do what is right, a life of uprightness in worship to a righteous God. Number five, the elder must be holy. It is devout or pious, pleasing to God. This elder must want to be pleasing to God to God. This must be his life's anthem. This man has set himself apart to serve God in his church. And he should be, in relation to that, be willing to go then the extra mile to deny himself in ways that others might not be willing. He must be holy. He must be set apart. Lastly, the elder must be disciplined. This is the picture of the athlete in 1 Corinthians 9 who disciplines his body. This man, the, the man of God, the overseer, disciplines himself for the purpose of godliness. Now these 11 things are what it looks like for the elder in the church to be above reproach, to be blameless, a testimony of the gospel, of a redeemed life, free from vices and in full pursuit of godly living. 1 Peter 5 verse 3 calls elders examples to the flock. And again, we talked about this already, but Hebrews 13, 7, we must imitate their faith. And so this list, while it is what is required of elders, should be what all of us desire to be for our lives to be above reproach, to be blameless in these areas, that there would be no reproach, no blame, no shame on the gospel of Jesus Christ. That our friends wouldn't 
see our lives and think, well, you, you've told me the gospel, but the way you live your life recklessly or in the power of the flesh instead of the power of the spirit, we should not want to bring reproach on the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we must follow the examples that these men, the elders of God church, God's church are to the flock. We must consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Would we be just like the elders of our own church are, testimonies of God's saving and sanctifying grace? So this is the elder's character, the elder's character. Thirdly, we see the elder's commitment, the elder's commitment. That is, his el- the, the elder's commitment to God's word. Look at verse nine. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. The elder must be devoted to God's word. He must, it says here, hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. You see, this is how, this is the means by which the elder can remain above reproach, how he can remain faithful, how he can remain blameless. He must hold firm, hold fast to He must be immersed in God's word. And that is how he will be found above reproach. I like the NASB here. It makes this connection grammatically. It says, holding firm, a present participle, an ING verb. It's what the elder is constantly doing. It's what he is currently doing. He is holding firm, holding fast to the trustworthy word. Turn with me to Psalm 1. We'll see a picture of this. Psalm 1. Look at verses 2 and 3. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Flip over to Psalm 19. Psalm 19. Starting in verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord is the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock, my redeemer. 
We could go to Psalm 119 as well and see that this is the elder, the overseer's heart. He's devoted to God's word, the precepts, the the commandments of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is in his heart because he's devoted to God's word. He is holding firm to the trustworthy word. Ezra 7 verse 10 describes Ezra, the man of God. He set his heart to study the law, to do it, and then to teach it. This is the man of God, the elder, the overseer, a man who holds firm to God's word. Back in Titus, notice there are two purposes for which the man of God holds firm. Look back at verse 9. So that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine first, secondly, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. You see, he's able to instruct or teach the church in sound doctrine, truth. But he's also able to use the two-edged sword of the word of God to rebuke or to refute error, to correct those who don't hold to sound doctrine. So in a sense, this elder, this overseer is a two-way player. He's got great offense and really good defense too. The kind of man that God once appointed in his church is one who is devoted to the things that he says in his word. God wants men who listen to him and can pass that word along. God wants men who, for the sake of their own characters, they're drinking deeply from God's word. But the outflowing effect of that man who is devoted to God's word in his own life is that the church is also equipped with sound doctrine and error is refuted. Paul in 2 Timothy writes the charge to this kind of man. He says, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed. Rightly handling the word of truth. This is the elder's commitment to God's word. The elder's commitment. The verse three that we've looked at are things that we must imitate, aspects of the elder to imitate. But the last one is one to not imitate. Fourthly, here we see in verses 10 through 16, the elder's counterpoint, the elder's counterpoint in ministry. This is the opposite of the man God once appointed in his church. Look again at verses 10 through 16. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. You see, while the 
qualified elder is the one Paul says should be appointed in verse 5. These unqualified men, Paul says, verse 11, must be silenced. You have the men that we've looked at so far who Titus should appoint. And then these men that we'll look at right now should be silenced. Their voice, their influence taken away in the church. You see, as local churches are established on the island of Crete, Titus is to appoint elders, and Paul is also saying, silence these other men. In in this passage, in verse 10, there are many of them. Titus must clean house. In every way, these men, those who must be silenced, are the exact opposite of those who must be appointed, the qualified elders. These Unqualified men are the counterpoint to the qualified, godly, faithful men. Look at verse 10. These men are insubordinate. If you recognize that word, it's the word rebellious. It's what the qualified elders' children should not be. So in a sense, these men are immature like children and insubordinate. They're also empty talkers and deceivers, verse 10 tells us, meaning they're vocal and opinionated, but in a self-serving, deceitful sort of way. And the end of verse 10 tells us exactly how they are deceitful. Verse 10, the end of verse 10, those who are of the circumcision party. Paul is identifying these men as part of a group of Jews who throughout the history of the early church taught that salvation was not by faith alone, but some version of faith in works, faith in circumcision in this case, but faith in washings or cleansings, faith in sacrifices, other rituals in other cases. And specifically, Paul here is talking about the circumcision party. And before we think, yeah, we're talking about false teachers, these men are very clear in the church that they're deceiving people. Any time you add anything to the gospel of Jesus Christ, of his grace and his free mercy to those sinners who don't deserve his love, you are on the path of being one of these men. Anytime you say someone must do something to be godly and to be in God's family, Anytime you say someone must do something, must do something your way or must do something your disciplers way and you leave no room, no grace, you are on the path of one of these men. The very counterpoint to godly ministry. And so we ought to think about the gospel clearly and then to think about godliness and holiness and a life that is growing as two completely separate things. But here, these men, they bring the gospel, the free grace and mercy of Jesus, and confuse it with people, for people with circumcisions and, and rites and sacrifices and rituals. So while the qualified and appointed elder is a project of God's grace and mercy, this insubordinate and qualified man is a product of his own effort, his own desires his own requirements. The qualified elder is exemplary in his family life. And these men, verse 11, are upsetting whole families. 
The exact opposite. They teach for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. Instead of leading their families with integrity and leading the family of God, these men, these unqualified men are destroying families by teaching their errant doctrine. They're picking off whoever they can with their teachings. They're targeting the weak and deceiving them, even profiting monetarily or materially from this. 2 Timothy 3 describes these men in a different church, for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions. You see, instead of the care of the qualified elder that we saw for his family, this unqualified man destroys family with falsehood. And this month at our church, we've been celebrating the the design of God for the family. This Sunday is Mother's Day. Quick reminder. And we ought to celebrate God's design for the family in the church. But these unqualified men destroy or upset whole families because they teach a gospel contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Notice also, though, this man's character. You see, the godly man is of godly character. This unqualified man is the exact opposite. This man, the unqualified deceiver, has godless and selfish character. Look at verse 12. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Paul says this testimony is true. Now, this saying, this prophet of their own, is this man, Epimenides, known as the Cretan paradox or the Epimenides paradox. You see, Epimenides was a Cretan. So for him to say that all Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons, can you trust a Cretan that's saying that? That's the paradox in this. But Paul is saying, who's not a Cretan, this testimony is true. These men are liars. They're evil beasts. They're lazy gluttons. These unqualified men are exactly like the Cretans around them who don't know God. So as we think about our own character tonight, there's a very simple principle here. Do we look like the world around us? Do we look like the Cretan world and the culture around us? For these men, their God is their belly. They ravage the church like an animal and they'll lie to everyone in the process just to get paid and just to satisfy, satisfy themselves. Paul's instruction to Titus is to rebuke them sharply. And this is what the appointed elders are supposed to do. If you remember verse nine, to rebuke those who contradict sound doctrine. And that's what these men do. But notice the grace and the patience of the Apostle Paul here. Why does he tell Titus to rebuke these men? What's the goal here? That they may be sound in the faith. Paul wants these unqualified men to know God. To see their error and repent. To be restored to right fellowship in the church. But in their current state, these unqualified men are the opposite of the elders whom God once appointed. 
So rebuke them, Paul says, sharply. While the, other, while the qualified overseer destroy, the, uh, demonstrates a commitment to God's word, the unqualified false teacher is committed to man's word. He's again the opposite in devotion to God's word. He's devoted instead to his own word. You see, while a faithful elder is devoted to the trustworthy word, sound doctrine, those of the circumcision party, verse 14, are devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. These men are devoted to Jewish myths, perhaps genealogies or numerology or other hermeneutical abuses of God's word. They're twisting these things to fit their own agenda, their own lives, to convince weak people to give them money and things. This is, again, how they're tearing families apart. They're also committed to the commands of people who turn away from the truth. You see, they've taken the teachings of man, the traditions, the commandments of the Jewish elders, the man-made laws that were added on top of God's law, and they use these untruths to manipulate and target the weak sheep in God's flock. And so to the pure, Paul says, those who understand true righteousness, that it doesn't come from within, but from the righteousness of Christ, Paul says, to these people, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, these men, nothing is pure. Both their minds and their consciences are defiled. These men have an outward religiosity and an extreme moral inconsistency with what is truly taught in God's word, in God's church. These men don't even follow their own moral ethic. And Paul's assessment of these men's character in verse 16 is perhaps the most damning. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They're detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. In the sight of God, these men are detestable. They are not pleasing to God like the faithful elders are as opposed to the faithful appointed elders who are obedient and hold fast to the trustworthy word, these men are disobedient. They are, in fact, unfit for any good work. While the faithful appointed elders are equipped for every good work through God's word, these men are useless, incapable of any good work. They are unqualified. And so these unqualified men serve as the counterpoint to God's faithful elder. These unqualified men are to be silenced. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. The Tale of Two Cities is a classic. Story of resurrection and sacrifice and reversal. Set in, as you know, Paris and London in the late 1700s, in the wake of the French Revolution and the Reign of Terror. And it's required reading, and for good reason. What you might not know about the tale of two cities, though, is that it's a tale of two men, two potential authors, Charles Dickens and Watts Phillips. Watts Phillips was an English playwright. He wrote a play called The Dead Heart, a play which had the same exact historical setting, 
a very similar basic storyline and an identical climactic ending. On a fateful night in 1857, Benjamin Webster, the leading actor at the Adelphi Theater, read the script of the play called The Dead Heart to a few friends he was performing with at the Adelphi Theater on the production of another play. In that group of actor friends was a young Charles Dickens. From that night in 1857 arose a controversy that plagued the early success of A Tale of Two Cities and the production that was called The Dead Heart. Who wrote the story? Charles Dickens or Watts Phillips? For years, the so-called Dickensites and the Phillipsites contested the original authorship of this great tale. A Tale of Two Cities is a tale of two men, two potential authors, two men whose work has since been dramatized and screenplayed and parodied to death, but we still don't know who wrote this great story, this well-loved classic. To this day, A Tale of Two Cities, or at least the story behind it, remains A Tale of Two Men, discussed in modern-day doctoral thesis statements and research papers about who is the real author. We have one real author and one imposter. Tonight's passage is in some ways a tale of two men, a tale of two kinds of men. One, a real leader, a qualified leader in God's church, and the other, an imposter. One, not an author, but devoted to the work of the author of salvation, and the other devoted to the God of his own belly. One is God's man, a man of godly character and God-given ability who leads and feeds God's church humbly and selflessly. This is the kind of man, Paul says, should be appointed. The other is his own man, a man of godless character who professes to know God but denies him by his works. He deceives and misleads God's church pridefully and selfishly. This is the kind of man, Paul says, who must be silenced. One is a page in God's story, a testament to his grace, his mercy, and redemption. And the other is a hoax, a copycat, a knockoff, a plagiarizer, a pretender. One is grounded in the reality of a tree growing by streams of water, bearing fruit in its season, and leading the church to do the same. The other is a facade of superficial spirituality aimed at personal gain, a withering tree that has no fruit to show for it, and he leads the church astray from truth. Tonight, we've seen this tale of two men, those who should be appointed and imitated, those who are an example to God's flock, and those who must be silenced. And tonight, we've primarily sought to understand the man of God, the qualified elder who is above reproach in his care for his family and his godly character and his commitment to God's word. Grace on campus, my prayer is that we see this passage and we, we would, as a result, respond in a way that would respect and imitate and honor those whom God has appointed in his church.
consider the way of life of these men and imitate their faith? Would we be grateful to God that he's provided qualified leaders here at our church to lead us in the Christian walk? Let's pray. God, thank you for your word is so clear who you need to lead your church. And we are so grateful we are at a church where we have these men. We have this kind of qualified, humble, faithful leader. And so God, we are so thankful that you've placed us here for this season of life. And God, would you give us much grace as we seek to understand these men, to respect these men, to develop relationships with them, and to imitate their faith. Lord, protect your church. Use faithful men to refute error, to rebuke men who lead astray. And we ask, God, your protection on our own church in this season, that, God, you would give us clarity in, in leadership and bravery in leadership and humility in, their, in our leadership that would protect your church and lead it to obey you, to be set apart for you and to worship you. And so God, we love you and we thank you for the clarity of your word and the ability we can, the ability that we have to see this passage and be grateful for what we do have. And so God, we commit these things to you, work by the power of your spirit, God, even tonight in your son's name. Amen.